Here are some questions I believe that every person in this room has struggled with. I believe these are, are questions we ponder and questions at times that can hone us if we're not carefully, if we're not careful. How should I respond when people mistreat me, when people cause me trouble and heartache? How should I respond? How should I respond when my family rejects me? How should I respond when a friend betrays me? How, how should I respond when people lie about me and spread rumors about me? How should I respond? Every person under my voice has experienced rejection, betrayal. People have slandered you, said things about you. How do I respond? The question would be, how do I trust God in the midst of the adversity that I'm going through? Now, Genesis chapter 37 through 50 is kind of a, an interesting narrative, if you will. You want to talk about a dysfunctional family. This one was a dysfunctional family on steroids. The family of Jacob was very dysfunctional. We talked about him last week. His name means schemer, cheater. God changes his name to Israel. But this family was a trip. Jacob had two wives, and he had two maid girls, if you will, and through those four women, he had 12 sons and at least one daughter that we know about. Now, Jacob being the schemer and cheater he was after he had stolen the birthright from his uh, twin, Esau, they send him over to live with a relative by the name of Laban. While he's there living with Laban, he uh, catches wind of this beautiful girl there, her, uh, his daughter, and he's like, man, I want to marry that chick right there by the name of Rachel. And so he sets his affection on her. Laban says, you work here at my farm for seven years and I'll give you my daughter. He worked seven years. After the seven years is up, Laban lies, cheats, deceives him according to his own nature and gives him his daughter Leah. The scripture says Leah was sad in eyes, which means she was a homely looking chick. Which means if you were describing her to others, you would say she had a real good personality. And so <laughs> he is married now to Leah. And then Laban looks and says, you're going to have to work another seven years. I'll give you my daughter, Rachel. He works 14 years combined, finally gets Rachel. Now, as they are hanging here together, Rachel is barren. She can't really conceive. And Leah is starting to have quite a few uh, kids. They encourage Jacob to sleep with these maid girls and other children are born. So by now, he's got about 10 sons and one daughter. Rachel is the apple of his eye. He's crazy about Rachel. And she finally conceives and she's able to give birth to a couple of sons herself, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Joseph was the second youngest Joseph's name literally means God will increase. Kind of good to know that as we unpackage the story here today. But Joseph was the second youngest. And the older 10 brothers absolutely hated Joseph because Jacob showed favoritism toward Joseph. He was spoiled and it ticked the rest of these boys off. Now, if you start studying the life of these boys when they were younger, they were somewhat a mess. The Bible paints them up as being hellions. They were rough and tough. They loved to create trouble when you read about them. And there was not too many fights they were going to back down from. 
As Joseph starts to get a little older, they come up with a scheme that we're going to tell dad that Joseph got killed. And, and so what they do is they take his jacket and they kill an animal and take the blood of the animal and it's all over this jacket. They take it back home saying, uh, Joseph got eat up by some animals. He's dead. Well, that was his pride and joy. But as they started scheming that, even after they told the dad he was dead, they actually threw him in a pit and said, we'll just leave him there and let him die. Well, they started thinking that leaving him there and just letting him die probably wasn't the best idea. There were some Ishmaelites, some foreigners, some travelers coming by, and they're like, you know what we could do? We could sell him to these Egyptian people right here as a slave. We can make a little money off of him, and then we're good to go. And so they, they did. And so here Joseph was, here Joseph was thrown in a pit against his own will. His brothers sell him as a slave. He's taken to Egypt now as a slave. Now, I don't know about your story, where you're at today, and what you've been going through, but I would uh, tell you that Joseph had a pretty nasty narrative happening in his life at this point in time. Come on. So these, 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 these stories in Scripture are written for our benefit that we can look back on them and, and hopefully gain some insight. So Joseph, things are going rough for him. They're going real rough. So I pose the question, even as I entertain this story of Joseph, why would God allow this to happen? This doesn't seem to be fair. Why would a loving God let his people struggle so greatly? I like what R.C. Sproul said. He said, you'll hear people pose the question of why do good things or why do bad things happen to good people? Anybody ever posed that question? Why do bad things ever happen to good people? R.C. Sproul said it only happened one time in history, and he volunteered for it. But he finds himself in a struggle. He finds himself in a foreign country with people he don't know. He doesn't speak the language, and he's a slave against his will. He's staying in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar has got him there as a slave, one day, Potiphar's wife, checking out Joseph, he's kind of a cute, sharp-looking dude. She comes on to him, tries to seduce him. He refuses to sleep with her. She screams rape. Now he's thrown in prison. Life is kind of interesting for the old boy. Life is tough. He was lonely. He was hurting. And he had every right to gripe, to complain, and to pitch a fit if anybody ever did. Here's where I want to go. Years later, I want you to see Joseph's attitude. Famine happens. We'll break that down in Egypt. But if famine happens, it's in Egypt, it's in Israel, it's throughout that land. And all of a sudden now, these 10 older brothers are needing food, and they have to find food, and there's food in Egypt. And when they get there, who do they run into but Joseph? And they're freaking out. But I want you to see Joseph's attitude as he has this conversation with his brothers. Pick it up in Genesis 50, 15. Jacob, their father, was now dead. And Joseph's brothers were afraid. Daddy's dead. We've got to deal with this dude. And we treated him like crap. This is not good. They said, Joseph will show anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him. 
So they sent a message to Joseph. They didn't even go initially. They just sent a message. And this is what they said. Before your father, they didn't say our, before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you and for their sin and how they've treated you so cruelly. They're, they're scared. They're panicking. They, they've got to face the music. And they're sitting there going, uh, uh, hopefully if we tell him dad told him to forgive us, ho- hopefully he'll do it. So they're scheming. Verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph said, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? Which means I'm not your judge. God is going to deal with you. I, I, I gave up that card a long time ago. And then he says this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you did, the intent of your heart was evil, but God meant what you did for good. God is going to redeem what I've gone through, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to keep many people alive. Don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for you and your children. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You've been through hell. You've been dumped on. You've been betrayed. You've been rejected. You faced death. You faced a lot of stuff in this room. How can you persevere? How can you handle the adversity that you're going through? Is there any hope to have a godly perspective and a godly attitude? Can you really trust God to be enough with what you're going through today? So those are the questions. What can we learn from Joseph? How can we persevere when adversity hits? Don't miss these. Let me give you some principles. Number one, God knows where I am, and God knows what I'm going through. Something in Joseph believed that even in the midst of all the harshness of being thrown in a pit, of being thrown in prison, Something in Joseph believed that God knows what's going on in my life. Five times in this passage here from Genesis 37 through 50, we read this phrase. Awesome, awesome phrase, Chad. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. When everything appeared hopeless, when it appeared that the bottom was falling out, Joseph believed that the Lord was with him. Ever since I came to faith in Christ in October of 1985, there's been twists and turns and peaks and valleys. But at some of those most adverse moments, I can tell you the peace and the presence and the power of Jesus was so strong. I was talking to Rick Bloomquist, who is our student ministries pastor here. And Kara is in her second pregnancy right now. And she's about five months along. And, and, and there's some troubles and complications right now going on in this pregnancy. And they had to admit her uh, into the hospital on Friday. But Rick made this statement on Friday night. He said, I'm telling you right now, I don't know what it is, but the peace of Jesus is so strong on our lives, Tim, I can't explain it. You're, you're going through adversity. You're going through uncertainty. You you don't know what's going to happen. But the peace of Jesus is so 
strong. And the scripture says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The scripture says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And something inside of us has to believe, God, you see where I'm at. You know what I'm going through. So here would be the fundamental question. It doesn't matter how old you are. Do you believe God is sovereign? Which means, do you really believe God is ultimately in control? Do you believe God sees what you're going through? Joseph struggled, but he stayed faithful, and he learned to struggle well in the midst of his adversity. We're all going to struggle, but do I know how to struggle well? Do I know how to press into the Lord? Do I know how to listen to his voice? He did not allow the harsh treatment of his brothers to poison his attitude. And some of us empower the crap that we go through, and it stains our attitude. It messes up our perspective. The psalmist would say in Psalm 23, the most quoted psalm in the Bible, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you, God, are with me. You are with me, which I conclude, God, you know where I am. You know what I'm going through. Your grace is going to be sufficient for today. You you might not fix it according to human standards, but I would rather have your peace, and I would rather have your perspective, and I would rather have your power in the midst of this storm than just to be removed from it. I want to experience you. And when God starts to cement that in your heart, I promise you it will change you. Second thing is this. God is in control of the final outcome. God can take our failures. He can take the sins that others have committed against us. He can take our mistakes, and he can redeem those stories into something beautiful. I believe that God is able to do the impossible. God is able to do the improbable. I believe that God can take whatever you're going through right now and turn it into something of beauty. God is sovereign. God gets the final word. That's the question, though. Do you really believe, do you really believe that God gets to call the shots? Do you believe he gets the final say? You can't lose passion of the process and get attached to an outcome. We don't know what God is doing at any given moment in our journey. We have believed for years, Barb and I, with our boys being involved in athletics and baseball, We believe that the reason God allowed those boys to play baseball is so that we could glorify God. We could point people to Jesus. I remember way back when Benji was 11 years old, on that travel ball team, there was one of the moms that came down with cancer. And Barb and other women on that travel ball team that were believers walked with that woman until she died. Why are you there? We're there to redeem this moment. We're there to love our neighbor. We're there to walk through this valley with them. We're we're there. Is it about a ball game? I can't tell you the scores of ball games that happened when they were 11 years old. But I can look back and tell you of how God redeemed that moment. God was in control. God was going to get the final word. And we had to stop going, do I really believe God is in control? And if you're in a crisis right now, I would highly encourage you to consider Joseph. He was nearly killed. He was sold into slavery. He was accused of rape. 
He was put in prison, and his life appeared to be falling apart. But God took tragedy after tragedy after tragedy and turned them into something beautiful. We all go through tragedies. We all go through pain, crisis, and chaos. But do I believe, ultimately, God, you see me, you know where I'm at, and you're in control. I painted the narrative last week of when Jolly, I met her in 1988 going through shoulder surgery. And I can tell you with all my heart, it was a very painful surgery. My third arm one, I knew that I would no longer be able to play baseball. It was the death of a dream for me. I had dreamed about this game ever since I was a little boy. And to let go of a dream can be hard. The death of a dream can be hard. But God met me in the midst of that, and it was hard. And it was a reality I knew that God was saying, you're going to have to trust me to walk through this valley with you. I started reading the book of Philippians a week before I had that shoulder surgery. I read Philippians in the morning. I read Philippians at night. When I say I read it, I mean there's four chapters. I read Philippians in the morning and at night. I would stop. I would write down verses. I would highlight scripture as I was going through it. Bam, I go through surgery. I'm in a sling right here for three weeks. I can't move it. I can't write. But I continue to go through Philippians. I'm staying at the LAX Hilton right down the road from the hospital. I had to go to the doctor every day. But I'm staying at this hotel. And while I went over there, and he would give me updates. I was going back, and I'm like, I got to get into this joy letter that Paul writes in adverse circumstances from a jail cell in Rome to these believers in Philippi. I got to get this joyful perspective, God. I got to know how you think. I came across Philippians 1.12. It was cemented in my heart where Paul writes, I want you to know that my circumstances will turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. I remember sitting there going, God, I choose to believe that my circumstances will turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. I started memorizing Philippians 1 at that time. Being confident of this, he who began a good work will be faithful to perfect it and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I started memorizing for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. I remember meditating and memorizing 121, uh, 29, where he says, not only have you been granted the privilege to trust Christ for salvation, but you've been granted the privilege to suffer for his name's sake. I started dr dr just drilling into the scripture, guys, and I can tell you my perspective was changed. It was changed. God was in control. God knew where I was. God knew what I was going through. Now, back to Joseph. He's in prison. Life appears to be awful. But while he's there, he refused to waste his assignment and opportunity. He became best buds, great friends with Pharaoh's number one man. And while he's in there, they get this incredible bond and friendship going. Years later, Pharaoh's having dreams, trippy dreams. He goes to his right-hand man and he says, do you know anybody that can interpret my dreams for me? The guy goes, yeah, that dude Joseph. The one that you stuck over there in the pen in prison, he knows how to interpret dreams. So they bring him in. 
He sits before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him, here's the dream I had. Do you know what it means? And he goes, yeah, yes, God showed me what it means. You're going to have seven years of just incredible harvest. Things are going to be great. And then you're going to go through seven years of famine. I'm just telling you, Pharaoh, you need to prepare for where you're about to go. God's showing me things are going to be great and then things are going to be rough. Pharaoh's like, dude, how do you know that? That's so impressive. I'm going to make you number two in command. He goes from the stinking pit to a prison to the palace because God gave him favor. God was with him. He kept trusting God. And God ends up using Joseph to save many lives, including many nations, including Israel from starvation. Here's the verse, 5020. Here is the verse. Joseph looked at them and said, listen to me, you meant evil and harm, but God meant it for good. What I've gone through, God's turning it around. Joseph hung in there even when he didn't understand what was happening. And I see so many people throw the towel in and run when they don't understand what's happening. I just quit. I I don't want to stay with it anymore. It's not worth it. And and so many people abandon their relationship with the king. The one we should be pressing into, we run from. And maybe you're going through a crisis today. Maybe you've got a lot of stress on your plate. Maybe things have been tough for you here recently. Let me encourage you. You may be the victim of a situation, and, and somebody has just dumped on you. I want to give you three thoughts here, but please listen to me. If you're going through a crisis and a tough time, maybe you just went through one, let me encourage you, refuse to throw a pity party. Joseph doesn't throw a pity party. When you read about his life and you read about all this junk that happened to him, he didn't throw a pity party. If you're overwhelmed right now with a crisis, pity parties cause depression. I've been dealing with people here recently, and it's amazing how easy it is to spiral down into depression. I read a quote by John Gardner, and I love this quote. He said, self-pity is the most destructive of all non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It is addictive. It gives momentary pleasure, and it separates the victim from reality. When you start to throw pity parties, I promise you, it is the most lethal of all non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It will absolutely destroy you. A couple of things. When you start to live in this realm of this little island of pity party, I can promise you, you will waste time and you will waste energy. You will waste time. You will forfeit assignments that God has put on your plate that you can't do them. When you feel sorry for yourself, you start thinking about how you've been wrong, how you've been dogged, how other people have treated you. Listen, it's okay to be concerned with what you're going through, but it's not okay to be consumed with it. And so many people empower their pain, their rejection, the betrayal, and they become consumed with it. That becomes their God. Rejection, resentment. And I look going, dude, you're wasting so much time. And then you can waste so much energy. When you throw a pity party, I promise you this, 
it causes you to overreact. You exaggerate whatever you're going through. It will cause you to waste so much energy. Man, I can't believe they treated me that way. Oh, I'm feeling so sorry for myself. Oh, I can't believe my feelings have been hurt this bad. And you can tell, listen to me, you can tell people that are throwing a pity party because they will say and do some of the stupidest stuff that they later regret. It causes you to lose your mind, lose your perspective. You snap. I get all twisted up in myself. Let me encourage you, when you're going through a crisis, if you're in a pit, people have betrayed you, rejected you, just, just stop. Refuse to throw a pity party. It ain't worth it. Second thing would be this. Never make a major decision when you're discouraged. No, no, no. Hey, listen, I've seen dudes, man, go back out and say, well, she going to leave me. I'm in my 40s. I'm still looking good. And they make some stupid decisions. Homie, you don't need to be in that convertible Corvette any longer. <laughs> Cruising down the road, thumping purple rain, dude, is not happening. And I've seen guys go through that, Steve. I'm like, oh, my Lord. He just got knocked down, and he's making a crucial decision right now. You're discouraged. Uh, we're tempted to say, I'm going to quit. I'm going to move. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to get a divorce. Feelings are so unreliable. And, and, and I'm just telling you, tap the brakes. Step back. Press into God. Spend some time in prayer. Get some godly, wise people around you. You're not going to get the counsel you need when you're discouraged at a bar. I promise you, based on what I'm seeing, Jack and Evan do not help you when you're going through a crisis. You need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit. Tap the brakes. Third thing I would say, refuse to throw a party. Never make a major decision. Three, confront bitterness immediately. Confront bitterness immediately. Take your feelings, take your resentment, take your unforgiveness, take your bitterness and lay it at the foot of the cross. Give it to Jesus. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I mean, I told you guys years ago, I'm going to use this story in about five years, but I shared this story years ago about my grandpa, Cash, I mean, there was a lot of us grandkids, but I think his favorite was this, this little girl by the name of Kim, my cousin. Well, Kim is now married. Kim's got quite a few kids herself, but her husband was treating her like hell. And I'll never forget, I went over to lunch one day with Papa and Granny. Granny's got powdered snuff running down her cheeks. I mean, she's out there cooking up her dumplings and, I mean, straight country people, right? But it was like, Paul, why don't you pray for us before we eat? He started praying for the food, and then he prayed this. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would send somebody over to Kim's house and beat the hell out of her husband with a baseball bat. That's old school. And I'll never forget, it was one of the most comical times in my life of hanging out with them. And as soon as he said that, 
My granny goes, whoo, I would not pray anything like that, Claudie. And I just sat there and laughed. And I was like, well, I can tell that he's got a little bitterness. And he's telling God how to be God. And I'm not really sure that he's the fourth member of the Trinity and God's going to heed to his uh, counsel. But here's a great verse for you, Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no root of bitterness spring up among you. Wherefore by it many will be defiled. And you've heard it said that bitterness is like drinking poison waiting for the other person to die. And bitterness will always do more to the vessel in which it is stored than it will to the object on which it's being poured. You've got to stop and go, what am I going through? What can I learn from Joseph's, uh, from Joseph's life? He refused to empower his brother's hate. You've got to refuse to empower the rejection, the betrayal, the gossip, the slander, whatever you've been through. If you ever start to empower that stuff, it's going to own you and control you. Tap the brakes. I was thinking about, even in my own journey, oh, what do you know? I know that God has used crisis to develop me. He's used painful moments in my journey to bring about deeper growth and maturation. And as I study scripture, I can promise you this. God can turn a crucifixion into a resurrection if you will let him. I promise you he can. Now, here's some practical takeaways. Practical takeaways. It's on your bulletin. God is greater than any problem I'm facing. That greater than sign should become cemented on your heart. God, you're greater than anything I'm going through. That's the reason we encourage our people, pray, pray, pray. But stop telling God how big your problems are and start telling your problems how big your God is because your God is greater than anything you're going through. Romans 8, 28, I would highly encourage you, if you don't know it, but I'm talking about knowing it. But it says, and we know, we know that God causes, God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I got to know him. I got to love him. And then I look at what I'm going through and I realize, God, you're with me. You're, you're not against me. You'll never leave me. You say your eyes are looking down. God, you're greater than I would highly encourage you to anchor deep in the truth of God is greater than. If your God is for you, then who can ultimately be against you? Second thought, take away. Embrace the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. We talk about total surrender. So many people have walked aisles, prayed prayers, and have gone through the religious church motion. And it's not working. There's no substance. There's no hope. And you still find yourself getting your lunch handed to you. We believe that you must become an all-in, fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen. And Dustin and I and our entire staff, we want to help you. We bought Right Now Media and we make it available to everyone. We've got devotional plans and growth plans. But, but you've, got to, you've got to reach out and say, help me. I, I, I want to grow. You've got to press into the person 
the power and the presence of Jesus Christ and trust that the Holy Spirit desires to lead you and direct you and guide you every day. God didn't leave us as orphans. He poured out the Holy Spirit. The paracletus lives inside of me. I've got God in me. I've got to press into it. Third, you've got to press into the promises of God. Again, Romans 15, 4 says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Whatever was written in earlier times, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, etc., was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might find hope. What are you saying? I'm saying you've got to memorize scripture. You've got to meditate on scripture. You've got to claim the promises of scripture. I believe there's so many texts that God has laid here for us to claim and stand on. I don't believe in the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it crap that certain people out here are teaching. But I do believe if God said it, I can claim it. I believe if God has spoken it, it belongs to me. And we've got to know truth. We've got to know the word. And I would highly encourage you, memorize a verse a week. Memorize a verse a day. Memorize the scripture. Meditate on it. I mean, one of my favorite things uh, a few years back is when we were doing a series uh, one summer through 1 John, and I remember standing here saying, over the next six or seven weeks, we're going to be going through the book of 1 John. There's five chapters. And I said, but I would highly encourage you over these next five or six weeks to memorize 1 John chapter 1. And I'll never forget, I went home that, that Sunday and I thought, you know, hopefully some of our people will do that. Tuesday morning, I was studying. I finished studying to come up for lunch that morning. And Barb said, come here. And so I, I, I came up and, and I sat down. And she goes, Hannah's got something she wants to share with you. And Hannah, she sat right there, Miss Sandra, and she quoted 1 John chapter 1, those 10 verses. And I said, when did you start memorizing that, baby? And she said, Sunday, didn't you challenge us to do that, Daddy? And I said, yes. But she had memorized chapter 1. I said, now I want you to tell me what it means, and I want you to tell me what it means to you. Dustin, that was one of the highlights, dude. I'm like, that little girl started carving up the word, and you would give them verses on Wednesday night. Go memorize this. She'd memorize the whole paragraph. She'd sit there, Dad, listen to this verse right here. And they're doing that right now uh, on, on our student ministry with Cross Student Ministries, they're going through the Gospel of John. She sat there the other day. Listen to what I read in John 3. Look at what stood out at me. Look at what I read in John 4. I just sent this to Rick and Kara out of John 5. And I said, yes! She used to get so fired up in the morning, Hannah. She would walk in and see Benji sitting there with his Bible open, reading the Scripture. Benji said, now I get fired up when I walk through her room to go to the bathroom. And there she is reading, meditating, and studying the Word. If that stuff ain't happening at my house, I can't tell you to do it here. Amen. If I'm not doing it, I'm not going to encourage you to do it. And if there's no substance, I'm not going to encourage you to do it. But I promise you this, grass withers and flowers fade, but the Word of God will remain forever. You can do it. And I promise you, when you start to hide God's Word and treasure God's Word in your heart, it is amazing. 
the ammo that you have to do battle with the enemy. Next week, I'm going to talk about soul restoration part four, and we're going to talk about breaking down strongholds, and you've got to know the armor of God. You've got to know it. Last point. Connect with the body of Christ. Connect with other believers. 2 Corinthians 1, I love this verse here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted with through God. I'm going to minister to you at this place of pain. I'm going to comfort you, but I'm comforting you so that you can go out and be part of my healing with other people. They need me. They got to press into me. They've got to experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to use you to go out and comfort others when their husband leads them or when their baby dies or when They've gone through an abortion years before they met me, and they now are feeling all this guilt and shame. Or the ones who had a needle stuck up their arm. Or the ones that had, you fill in the blank. I'm going to comfort you, Paul. I'm going I'm to redeem your story. And I'm going to bring about healing in your life. But you're going to go comfort other people, brother, yes. with the comfort that you've received. Yes. And man, I'm telling you, when you get there, it will change your narrative. Come on, somebody. What are you going through? What is your crisis? What is your battle? What is your tension? I can promise you this. God sees you, knows where you're at and what you're going through. God gets the final say. I will refuse to throw a pity party. I ain't throwing one for myself and invite nobody else to it. I am not, I'm not going there. I'm not going to make any major decisions when I'm discouraged, when I'm twisted up in my own psyche. I refuse to empower bitterness. I'm going to press into the promises of God. I'm going to press into Jesus. And I'm going to really believe that God is greater than anything I'm going through. And I'm going to walk it out with the body of Christ. I invite you to the party to join us because that's what God has called us to.